We are ready to get started. And so this week we're going to take a break from our series on the Holy Spirit. And this morning we're going to look at a difficult passage. And we're going to talk about a difficult subject, and that is our money, or God's gift of money to us. And we're going to look at how the, the gospel shapes our view of money and how we use money this morning. And so um, before we get we're going to look at James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Before we get started in that, I want us to just consider the purpose of James's letter. I think that'll help us understand what he's trying to accomplish. And so if I had to pick two themes throughout all of Scripture, uh, the two most pressing themes throughout all of Scripture, I would say the first one is, is to help people come to know who God is, all that He's done, and who they can be, who they can be in light of that. Um, and so, that, so that, is, that is the first pressing theme, to help people find God, to find out who God is and all that He's done. I would say the second pressing theme of all of Scripture is, is, is to help people understand how they can live in light of those truths that they just they just discovered about God. And I really think that's what James's letter, his, his letter is dealing with that latter theme, how we can live in light of the truths of the gospel, how we can live in light of who God is and all that he's done for us. And so James is not developing a lot of doctrine or, or, or truth in that matter, but he, but he is really trying to, he, he assumes that we already understand this doctrine and he's trying to help us live in light of what we already know. He assumes we already know the gospel, that we already know the go- this doctrine, and so he's trying to help us live in light of that. And so when we as a church, that's, that's us, truly believe the gospel, things begin to change. We begin to live out what we believe about God, and we begin to live out the faith. And so, so James's urgent message here is faith in action. Live out what you believe to be true about God. And so when we do that, mountains move, God works in awesome ways, lives change, people are saved, um, needs are met, neighbors are loved, and the gospel is shared, and, it's just, and it goes throughout the world through, through whatever sphere that we are, we are in. So this morning, I want to read those verses. They're very difficult verses. They're very jolting verses, if you will. And I want us to consider who James is speaking to, and that's important for us to get uh, right off the bat. I want us to consider the purpose behind these verses, and I want us to, to dig into the, to the primary charge that James is making against his readers. And then I want us to consider what we can learn from this passage and really all of Scripture about money. And then finally, I want us to consider how the gospel shapes our view of money and how we use money. So y'all ready to get started? All right, let's read James 5, starting in verse 1. Come now, you rich, Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last day. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one. He does not resist you. Let's pray. Lord, we, we love you. We confess our great dependence upon you. Lord, we pray that you move this morning. Lord, it is my greatest desire that you are made much of and that you are honored and glorified through your word. Lord, I pray that, that hearts are changed, that, that those who yet to know you will, will see the beauty of your love for them through the gospel. 
They'll confess faith today. And Lord, those who, those who, do, not, who do know you and, 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 and who, who love you and who follow you, that Lord, that you will, you'll eat away at the sinfulness of self today. Make, make us all more into the image of Jesus through the preaching of the word and the power of your spirit. Lord, you called us to, to live lives that represent your character. You called us to live lives that, that, that are holy, that are set apart. Lord, you called us to live lives that, that love you supremely. And through that love that we're able to help others. Lord, I pray for understanding today. Lord, your word says in this book, you say, if we, if, if we need wisdom and we ask you, you'll give it. And so, Lord, I, I pray for wisdom this morning. Wisdom to know how great you are and all that you've called us to do in this life. And ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So that passage that I read is probably the most severe passage in all of Scripture when it comes to money. It's, it's pretty harsh. It, and really, it's, uh, if, if you look at it, it, James is not being very nice. He's being very blunt. And, and, and if anything, he's kind of being in your face to jolt us. And, and, the, and the verses only contain, contain a message of condemnation. And, and, and the coming judgment. So with that kind of blunt language, many, many, many Christians and many smarter people, people that are much smarter than me, say that surely James is not talking to Christians. And that's been debated for a long time. Many commentaries say he's talking to Christians. Many commentaries say he's not talking to Christians. And I, and I think we need to be careful with that. Those who say he's not, they argue that it, there's no message of hope, there's no freedom and forgiveness, there's, there's no call to take a corrective action, and so there's no way that he's talking to Christians. But I, I want us to be careful with that analysis. I want us to be careful that we don't make such a radical decision uh, about this not applying to Christians. I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying this passage does not apply to non-Christians, those who have yet, to not, yet not to believe, but I, but I am saying that we should not so easily exempt a Christian from this passage. And I want to give you three reasons why. The first one's pretty simple. If you go back to the first chapter of James, it is addressed to the 12 tribes in dispersion. So in other words, James's letter has addressed this to the Jewish Christians who have been scattered across the land for whatever reason, mostly because of persecution. And I don't know about y'all, but when I write a letter to someone and I say, Dear Tammy, I don't get in the middle of that letter and say, This is not for you, this is for somebody else. And so this, this letter is originally addressed to, to Christians. Second reason I say that, it, that it, it applies to Christians is that we must let Scripture inform Scripture. And we can't, we can't single out this passage and say that it doesn't apply to to believers without looking at the verses that are flowing in and maybe even the verses that are flowing out. So I want us to take a second and look at the verses that are flowing into these first six verses in chapter 5. And let's look at the last five verses in chapter 4. James 4, starting in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a land and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are amidst the wills. We will have a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we'll do this or that. 
As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. And so we can argue that that passage is applicable to Christians because it has this corrective language in there. There in verse 15 it says, Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills. So instead of jumping the gun and when we get to, to the chapter 5 and saying this is not applicable to believers, we ought to ask ourselves a question. Do these verses, remember when, when, the, when these letters were written, there were no verse numbers and chapter numbers. It was just a letter. And so we need to ask ourselves, do those verses from chapter 4 flow in? Is there a connection to chapter 5? And I, and I think if we think hard enough, we'll see a connection. So at the end of chapter 4, it's given us this illusion that we can work hard, be great strategic planners, and everything will be fine. We can do all of these things without a thought to the Lord. And then I think that if we look at those first six verses in chapter 5, what we're seeing is a glimpse of the kind of people from chapter 4 at the end of chapter 4. The kind of people that those who are self-reliant, this is what results from that. So I think we see a, a connection. So we'll see in a little bit that, that those who, who, uh, who, who trust in their own process or trust in their own strategic planning will become people who, who hoard their money, who don't help others, and who live a very self-centered life that we see in, verse five, in chapter 5. I would say the third reason that these verses do apply is really this is just very practical and kind of maybe more personal for me. That's just kind of an easy way out to say these tough verses don't apply to Christians. And we, and we know that throughout Scripture, God talks about people with wealth over and over and over. And wealth and money are not the problem. It is their sinful heart that is the problem when it comes to that money. So we should not ever, ever think that a Christian has it all figured out when it comes to money. For those of us that a Christian is completely righteous in how he deals with his money. And so remember, those of us in Christ are being made new every day. As we study the Word of God, as the Holy Spirit works in our life, we are being changed. We are being made into the image of God. So I would say that some Christians, and really maybe all of us, all have a difficult or poor relationship with money or a relationship that could be more Christ-like for sure. And so... So we, we struggle with that, and, I, and I just, I just, when I think about that, that we are being made new into the image of Christ, I look at these verses and say, we, we need these verses. We need these difficult verses so that the Lord will change us and work in our lives. So, so for those reasons, I'm, I believe James is speaking to believers. And so then the next question we need to ask is, is why does James use such harsh language, and what is his purpose in using such harsh language? And I think it's this. So at the cross, we see both God's justice and his love. And, and so Jesus was, was nailed to the cross, and he, and he shed his own blood on, on, our behalf, on our behalf, and he died to satisfy that justice of God. And at the same time at the cross, that God sent his only son to, to love and to save a people, we see his great love for his people as well. He died taking on our, the wrath that we were due. And that's love. So at the cross, we see God's justice and we see his love. And I think that's what the good pastor James is doing here uh, in, this, in this passage. He's, because because so often we have a hard time holding on to both God's justice and his love at the same time. And so depending on the topic or the sin, we hold tightly to God's justice and we forget about how much he loves us. And what do we do? We fall into legalism. Or depending on the, the topic or the sin, we hold tightly to God's love. 
And we forget his demand for holiness on our lives, and we fall into this state of mind that we have this license to sin, that we become abusers of grace. And, that we, and we believe when we, when we hold on to his love and forget his justice, we believe that, well, God loves me, so how I live doesn't matter. And that's the exact opposite of what James is telling us in this whole letter. So I believe James is using this, this harsh language to take away that false comfort we have in God's love, forgetting that he's also just. And, I, and what I really think, he's, he's let me say this, I, he's not saying they're not Christians, and he's not saying you're going to lose your salvation, but he is calling them to examine the fruits of their life. Much the way the Apostle Paul did in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Remember when the Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And I think far too often for us in Christ, in this fight against legalism, that we forget God's call on us to be a holy people, to be a righteous people. To live the way James is explaining to us in this letter. To live out the faith that has been given to us in a way that brings honor to the Lord. That live, to live out the, 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 our lives in a way that, that reveals the character of God. And so when we hold tight to God's love and we forget the holiness of God, I think there's a pressing question we have to ask ourselves. Why did Christ die for me? And we know that he died to save us from our sins. But he also died to save us to something, to a greater life, to a more beautiful life. And as we'll talk about in a little while, to a more generous life. Christ didn't save, didn't die for us to get us out of hell and then we can live the way we want today. He died to change us into a beautiful person and a person who loves him supremely and a person who loves others as they love themselves. And I, and I think that's what James is doing today. He is, he is calling us by taking away that false comfort in these harsh words, taking away that, that partial truth that God loves me so it doesn't matter how I live, and reminding us that God is a just God and a holy God. He's calling us to examine the fruit of our lives, examine our own hearts in this passage. And to make a determination of whether we are, we are, our lives truly reflect what we believe about God and about the gospel. So then, what is the warning that James has for his people? And if I had to sum it up as one overarching warning, and it's very familiar to us in our Western culture, that warning is materialism. Materialism is when we are preoccupied with the created thing. When the created thing is more superior to us than anything else in the world. When the created thing is more superior than the creator of all things. And I, and I, and I just, I, I've seen it in my life, and I've seen it in my friend's life. We never have enough. We always want more, and there's never contentment. Think about, think about the verses, and I think we see this happening in our verses. Um, think about the charges. So in verse, in verse 2, he's charging them with having an insatiable desire for both riches and clothes. In verse 3, he's charged them with having a, a greedy desire for wealth. In verse 4, he's charged them with taking advantage of others for financial gain. In verse 5, he's charging them with self-indulgence. So what are they doing? Well, instead of buying things they need, they're buying things they don't need and will never use. And this is called hoarding. They're also building up wealth 
that they'll never be able to use. So think about, why does James say, your riches are going to rot, your garments are going to be eaten by moths, and your gold and silver is going to corrode? I think the answer to that question is in verse, is in verse 3. He says, because you've laid up treasures in the last day. I love the NIV translation there. It says, you have, rot, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. And the, so they're recklessly hoarding their possessions, their wealth. They're holding on to things that they'll never, ever be able to use. And because they'll never use them, they'll, they'll rot, they'll corrode, and they'll be eaten by insects. And I, when I think about that, I think, what a waste. What a waste of life. What a waste of God's resources. And then the story just continues to get worse as we look at the passage. So not only are they misusing the gift of money to them, but they have this great thirst for more. And so what do they do? They take advantage of their workers in the field for more financial gain. And why do they do that? Verse 5 says it so they can live in even greater luxury and self-indulgence. The more they make, the more they spend on themselves. That is the definition of self-indulgence. So what can we learn from, from James this morning and really, really all of Scripture? What does all of Scripture say about this? And I think the first thing I want us to see is money and having wealth are not sinful, but your attitude towards them, how you use them, your view of them is very sinful and can be very dangerous to your soul. And, and, and when Paul wrote Timothy in 1 Timothy, um, he reminded Timothy of that because false teachers had come into the church and they were there for gain. And so let's, let's read that from 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and to many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. By craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. And so some have misused this text to say that it is money that is the root of all evil. The text does not say that. It says that the love of money... That desire for money, that unrighteous desire for money, is, is the root of all evil. It is what entraps us, it ensnares us, it, it distracts us from, the, from, from how much God loves us. And so we, when we have this love for money, I, I like to say this, we are, we are easily attracted to the deceitfulness of wealth. And remember Jesus' warning in the parable of the sower. That, I think it's in that second or third part. But in Mark chapter 4, let's read that. Our Lord said this, and, and the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So when we have this love for money, we deceive ourselves. We think that is what's going to make us happy, and that is what is going to fulfill us. That is what is going to make us content. And I know it's not, that is a lie from hell. It's not true. And I want you to believe that today. Satan wants you to believe that, that money is your God. And he wants you to believe that, that it will solve all your problems. And why does he want you to believe that? Because he wants to take you away from your love for the Lord. He wants to distract you, and that's what he does. He is the father of lies, so it is a great lie that he tells. And so when we think having all those things, when we have this great love for money, we think that it will solve all of our problems, and I'm telling you, that's just not true. The more we have, I would argue, the more anxious we become. So I know that when, when, uh, 
when I was in college and I had an old beater car and somebody opened the door into it and put a big dent in it, I just marked it up as another trophy. But when I graduated from college and got my first car, it really bothered me when someone did that. And I got very upset and I became very anxious over the new things that I had. So I'm not saying having a new car is bad, but I am saying that when your love for that new car or your love for, for the things, the created things of this world is greater than your love for the Lord, then it will cause you more anxiety than you, than you can ever imagine. And so this unquenchable desire to pursue wealth above all things causes you great anxiety and stress in life. And let me add this. Someone told me after the first service that I don't have much money, so this, this message doesn't apply to me. <laughs> I think he said it tongue-in-cheek. But anyway, um, it does. Because you don't have to have a lot of money. You don't have to be rich to be a lover of money. The Bible speaks over and over and over about that. Your honest heart, the heart that wants what your neighbor has. And I'm telling you, if that is you, you're always wanting the next thing, the next greatest thing. If you're always looking at your neighbor and saying, I want that, that too will eat at your soul. And that too will cause you great anxiety and maybe even lead you into greater sins. So it is this love for money that distracts our heart and turns our attention away from God and to the things of this world. And so think about today's passage. Let's just one more time look at the flow of what's happening in these verses. It is the love of money that causes these people to buy things and to store up wealth that they will never use. It is the love of money that causes them to take advantage of others for financial gain. It is this love of money that leads them to live lives of self-indulgence. And this love of money is dangerous. Remember what, what Paul told Timothy. He said, it is the root of all kinds of evil. And so when you look around the world today and you see the crimes that happen, what generally is at the root of those? Somebody wants something that's not theirs. And so they steal or murder or whatnot. The love of money, the love of this covetous heart is the thing that, 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 that drives, drives us away from the Lord and causes evil in this world. And so, and it really in the context that where Paul was writing to Timothy, it's even more scary because he's addressing people in the church. And he's saying, people in the church, you, you are, your, your love is not God. Your love is, is money. They were churchgoers. They were leaders in the church. And at some point, it became known that they loved money more than they loved the Lord. And they fell away from the faith. And that's a sad story, but I know that that happens still every day. And so when we focus on, these, on this earthly success, wealth, we become idolaters. And in Romans 8, 8, it tells us that, that when earthly goals are our key, are our, our greatest desire, that we cannot also please the Lord. The Lord has to be our treasure. And so, but, so, so when, but let, me, let me say a good side of wealth. Remember, remember what I said, that, that having wealth is not a sin. When you love the Lord supremely and you've been blessed with money and wealth, it can be used in very generous and beautiful ways. It's not sinful for a Christian to be a wealthy Christian because God, I've seen throughout my life, I've seen throughout many other lives, I've seen throughout Scripture that God has often blessed people with earthly riches so that they will distribute those for the benefit of others. Christians who do not treat money as an idol are a blessing to others. Think about, think about, 
And this, and this is not just wealthy Christians. This is all Christians. Christians give to charities. They give to the church to help the church keep the mission of the church going, to help it accomplish that mission. They give to the poor. They give to the uh, to, to, to drug and alcohol rehab centers. They give to pregnancy crisis centers. They help the homeless, and they support orphans and widows, as James says in, in chapter 1. What else? They give, to, they give generously to missionaries so that the gospel can go forward throughout the world. And so, so having money and wealth is not sinful, but, but how you use it. If it comes about yourself, it can become very sinful and very dangerous to your soul. The second principle I want us to know today from this and all of Scripture is that saving for a rainy day is not sinful either. God is not against us living responsible lives and saving for that rainy day. Consider, consider her ways and be wise without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. And so God has created us to work. Look, look at how we're created. God created us all to work and to be um, fruitful in our work. And, it, and this verse says that we should be prudent in our savings. And so when, when we save, we, we demonstrate that we are good stewards of God's resources. And when we save, we're able, we're able to be prepared for the future. When we save, we are, we are allowed to meet ministry needs. When we save, we're allowed to help others in need. But, as we see in today's passage, God is against hoarding. He is against this self-indulgence. So, so I think we need to understand that there is a difference between the two. Between saving, being responsible in this life, but hoarding. Hoarding things that will never be used. Hoarding things that we'll never be able to use because there's, it's just too much. And so I think, I think this, is a, this is a good place for me to share a story with you about John Wesley. And before I share the story with you, I want you to know this is not a, a formula. Um, this is not a rule that you should follow. But I will tell you this is very wise. It's very gospel-centered. And I wish somebody would have told me this story when I came out of high school. And, it, and the story goes like this. Early in John Wesley's life, he earned 30 pounds. So that's, um, he was in England, so Pounds uh, converts to dollars some way. So anyway, so early in John Wesley's life, he earned 30 pounds. And in that first year, he earned that 30 pounds. He gave away three of those pounds. So that's your familiar 10%. That sounds right um, to us, right? The next year, he earned 40 pounds, and he gave away 10 of those pounds. The next year, he earned 70 pounds, and he gave away 40 pounds. And then late in his career, it was said that he made 1,400 pounds in a year, and he just gave it all away. If y'all are good at math, you see the wisdom in this kind of lifestyle. That, that he, he figured out early in his life that he could live on 30 pounds a year, and he would just give the rest of it away. As his, his lifestyle stayed the same. Do you see the gospel-centeredness of that lifestyle? I really think it is, it is an example of what James is calling us to be uh, as we live out the gospel, the gospel that we truly believe in our heart. And so John Wesley lived this out because he believed the gospel. He believed the truth of the gospel. He believed God's word. He believed that God was lavish in generosity towards him. And so God, I want to add one more thing to this, just as a warning. God, God takes our attitude about money seriously. And listen to what he says in the, in the middle of verse 3 one more time. In James 5, in the middle of verse 3, he says, and their corrosion, so he's speaking of their, their, like their gold and silver, their treasures, will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. So James is saying that the corrosion of your riches, 
is a picture of God's coming judgment on your life. And when Christ returns, if you're found to be a lover of money that, that Paul wrote Timothy about, and not a lover of Christ, if money is your greatest treasure and Christ is somewhere down the list, just as your riches will rot, so will your soul for all of eternity. And so we should save for our day of need, but we don't need to be hoarders of our wealth. Hold on to God's precious gift of money to you loosely so that you can be generous towards others. So you can give it, to, give it away whenever you need to. And, and listen, in some form or fashion, every one of us in here have been blessed by God. Whether time, resources, gifts, talents, whatever they may be. And he's given us those things so that we can be a blessing to others and we can bring honor to him. So use those gifts that way. And let, let me add one more principle to you that there's something that I've struggled with. I can't, I can't give you guys a nifty formula this morning to follow. There's just, there's, there's not, uh, I, I can't, some of you might say, well, Dan, just tell us to give 10% and we're okay. And I just can't because that's not what the word of the Lord says. Some of you may need to give 20% away. Some of you may need to give 30% away. Some of you may need to give everything away. I don't know. And so this is, this is not a text that's calling me to judge you or anyone else to judge you. It is a passage that is calling you to examine your life and how you use your money in light of the gospel. And, I, and I, can, I can tell you that the Bible talks a lot about money. Matter of fact, the Bible talks, Jesus speaks more about money than he does hell. And, it, and the Bible speaks a lot about how we use our money. And so, like I've said before, this passage that we read from James is probably the most severe passage in all of Scripture when it comes to our money. And so the Bible tells us a lot about uh, money, which tells us we should care for orphans and widows and the poor, the needy, and the sick. It says we should give to the church to support the mission of the church. We should give to missionaries. The Bible tells us that everything we have is a gift from the Lord. Everything we have is a gift from the Lord, including our money. And so we should use that. However, and to help others. However, the Holy Spirit works in your heart to bring glory to our Father and to help others. There's no formula I can give you. It is a matter of your heart. And this morning you're being called to search your heart. Are you a lover of money? Or are you a lover and follower of Christ Jesus? Money is a tough topic, I know. I can tell by the, the look on your faces. But by, but by God, and it's been tough to me. And, I've, and it's been one of my personal struggles uh, in all of life. But by, by God's grace, over the last year, 10, 12 years of my life, he's chipped that away. And this is why, because the gospel changes everything, including how we use our money. And so how? How does the gospel change? Well, Romans changes change how we use our money and how we view money. Romans 1 tells us that we are all worshipers of the created thing instead of our creator God. And that includes money. And it's true. We're all guilty of it. We all have pursued things and riches and luxury. And we've pushed God to the side and we said, God, I don't, I don't want you, but I want what maybe what you can give to me. And how did God respond to that sinfulness? We told him, we don't want you, God, but we want all the stuff of this world. We want to we worship all the idols of this world. We want all the money in the world, God, but we don't want you. How did God respond to that sinfulness? He responded with generosity. Instead of 
instead of uh, striking us down, he sent his only son to this earth. And, and, and while Jesus was on this earth, he faced every temptation that we face today, including that temptation for materialism. Remember when the Holy Spirit led him out into the, into the wilderness? And remember that second temptation that Satan gave to him in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 8? And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and only in, in him only shall you serve. So Satan takes Jesus out in the wilderness, out in the wilderness. He offers him all the riches of the world, all the authority over all the nations, all the power that comes with that. And, and, and he said, if you'll just worship me, you can have all of that. And Jesus, in the face of this temptation, the same temptation that we still face today when it comes to money, Jesus said, I'm not going to worship you, Satan. I don't want the authority that you have to offer me, nor do I want all the riches that that authority may bring to me. And then he says to Satan, you shall worship the Lord your God, and only in him only shall you serve. Jesus, our king that we just sang about a little while ago, shows us this perfect response when we're tempted with materialism. When we're tempted to worship the created thing versus our creator God, the creator of all things. And not only that, while Jesus was on earth, look what all he did. And his love for people, he fed the poor, he healed the sick, he cared for women, he, he cared for widows, he cared for all the marginalized people of this world. He even cared for people who were rich. He even tried to lead the rich young ruler to himself. And when people questioned him why he was doing all of these things, he never sinned. He lived the perfect life on our behalf. The life that we should have lived. The life that we couldn't live. And then on that, that appointed day, Jesus, our king, willingly and obediently went to the cross, and there he died. He took on the wrath of God that we deserved because of our selfishness and our, and our, and our self-centeredness, because we worship this created thing versus our creator God. And he gave his life for who all would ever believe. Did you hear what I said? He gave. He gave his life, and that giving of life for all who would ever believe is the greatest and most beautiful picture of generosity you'll ever see. But that's not the end of the good news, because three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, and he, and he defeated every sin we've ever committed, including this, this desire to worship the created thing. And he also defeated Satan, the father of lies, the one who always comes to us and tempts us to worship him and the created thing. And he defeated death, both physical death and spiritual death that often comes at the hand of worshiping something other than our Lord. And he gave this all for you. He gave his life, his death, and his resurrection. All of that is the gospel. All of that is the best news any of us will ever hear. And Christ Jesus did that for us. And when we believe this gospel, and I encourage you to believe this gospel today, 
Matter of fact, in, during our time of communion, and we're singing a couple of songs, um, some people from the prayer team will come forward. And they would love, if you've never professed faith in Christ, they would love for you to come and talk, talk to them. And they would love to pray for you. I urge you today to believe this good news. And when you do believe this good news, hear me, everything changes in your life. You have this new identity. You become sons and daughters of the Most High God. And everything else may fail. We may lose our jobs, our savings accounts, our retirement accounts, our homes, our cars, our health. Everything may go away tomorrow. But that does not change who you are in Christ Jesus. Those things do not define us. And those things no longer have power over us. And, and, as, and along with that new identity, we're giving new hearts, with new desires, that want to live out that faith that we have been giving. That's what James is calling us to, to, to live in accordance with what we believe is true about God. Our generous king has called us to be a generous people. And the gospel changes everything about our lives, including how we view and use our money. Listen now, this, this self-denying generosity is a fruit only faith in the gospel can produce. The self-denying generosity is a fruit only faith in the gospel can produce. Through, through our inspired writer James, that is what God is calling us to today. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We confess that, that sin still remains in our bodies. We confess that oftentimes we, we desire to worship everything but you. And so Lord, grant us repentance today. Lord, send your spirit to pierce our hearts and to change us so that you are our greatest treasure. So there's no other treasure that we worship. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we need you. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.